trying to get all set up here and situated. <laughs> One of the things that I'm convinced of, and I suppose since uh, I'll be deciding what I want to talk about, I'm as responsible for this as anyone. But one of the things I'm convinced of is that as a whole, we don't study the Old Testament as much as we ought to. Now, sometimes I've even heard some people express the idea that they don't see much of any value in us studying the Old Testament. After all, we're New Testament Christians. That's the part of Scripture that's most relevant to us. Well, for one thing, we need to know the story of all of Scripture so that we know all of what God has done and we know where we fit in to that larger narrative of what God is doing in the world from creation to the fall to his sending a redeemer, his creation of a people to be his own unique possession. But beyond that, just on a purely practical level, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. From time to time, it's just good for us to review some of the things that happened to God's people in the long ago. As Paul notes, he's writing about the early Israelites, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, that these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction. One of the purposes that the Old Testament serves is instruction for us. Sometimes it serves as an inspiration for us. Sometimes it serves a warning purpose for us. What I want us to do this evening is to take three Old Testament characters, familiar stories probably to most of us who are here this evening, and try to feel a little bit of the impact of their examples in our lives. And if we thought of this morning as sort of setting the tone for the new year, uh, goals that we have, things that we want to, to do, or an outlook that we want to have, we might think of tonight's lesson as pitfalls that are easy for us to fall into that we want to avoid in this new year. Ancient Israel became a great nation under God's guidance and blessing, and the zenith of its power was reached during the period of the United Kingdom, when Saul and David and then Solomon sat on the throne. At that time, Israel actually had a great deal of influence in the ancient Near East. Other nations brought it tribute. It was a sort of minor regional empire there. But never again, after the death of Solomon and the division of the kingdom that ensued under his son Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam, did it have that same degree of material prosperity and power and influence again. I want us to review tonight some, just scratching the surface, of the familiar story, the history of these first three kings of Israel. You see, these kings have a number of things in common. For one thing, they were all chosen by God to be the leaders of his people. They were all also men of great ability. You single out any one of these men among their contemporaries and they would all stand far above them in terms of the natural capabilities that they had in different ways. 
They were all also alike in that each one did some outstanding things during his reign. But unfortunately, and more to the point of our purposes this evening, they were all also alike in that each one of them serve as some powerful negative examples for us. Each one of them had some severe failings. Each one of these three men began his reign with promise. It would hard, be difficult to think of a greater beginning than each one of these men had. But it would also be difficult to imagine a lower low point than each of these men sank to at one time or another during their respective reigns. They inspire us in some ways. They warn us in others. But let's begin, first of all, with the first of these three, Saul. We're going to actually read some selections of all of these stories this evening. And Saul's story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, you might remember that prior to this time, God's people had been ruled by judges rather than by kings. But all of the other nations around them had a king, and as is human nature, eventually Israel decided that they wanted a king too. They wanted to be just like all the other countries around them. And so we pick up the story in verse number 4 of 1 Samuel 8, and it says that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. See, they actually already had a king. God had been their king. But they wanted to trade that in for an inferior, pale shadow, an imitation of the real thing. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And so God chose to indulge them. He acquiesced to their request. Now Samuel was still reluctant. The great prophet and judge that he was, he made a speech and he tried to persuade them of all of the, the trouble that a king would bring to them, but they didn't listen to his words. The people's hearts were set. And so in verse number 19, we see that they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, the next chapter, chapter 9, the opening verse tells us about the man that was chosen to be that king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. In other words, Saul looked like a king. He was taller than anyone. He was good looking. Saul was captain of the football team. He was the big man on campus. If you were making a movie and wanted to cast someone as king, you'd see Saul walk into the room and say, there we go. We've got our king right there. But Saul had more than that going for him. He actually had a number of good qualities. The one that stands out to us initially is that he was a modest and humble man. You turn to the next chapter, chapter 10, 
when he's been told that he's to be king and all of the people assemble together for his coronation, they can't find him. And lo and behold, verse 22, he's actually hiding among the baggage. Unfortunately, that modesty was not a trait that he would possess throughout his reign. But we read then in verse number 24, they find him there hiding among the baggage. And Samuel says to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So Israel now had that king that they so desperately wanted. And Saul immediately went out and he rallied all of the troops. And he went out, first of all, to fight Israel's old enemy, the Ammonites. He's off to a good start. He's a fine, promising young man. But what we soon find is that Saul wasn't nearly as modest, nearly as humble as he seemed to be at the beginning. Most of you will remember this. Under the law of Moses, it was not lawful for anyone but a priest to offer a sacrifice to God. An ordinary person couldn't do it. They weren't allowed to do it. Well, Saul faced a situation where he thought a sacrifice needed to be made. He had the entire army all assembled. They were ready to fight the Philistines, and he wanted to make an offering to the Lord in order to to bless this battle that they were about to go into. And so he called for Samuel to come and to offer that sacrifice. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And then he waited a little more, and Samuel didn't show up, and finally he decided, well, enough's enough. I'm going to offer the sacrifice myself. He took matters into his own hands. This is in chapter 13, verse number 8. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He acted impetuously because he was afraid of what the people were going to do, that he was losing them. This is not just ill-advised. This was actually unlawful. God had specifically commanded only priests to make the offering. And lo and behold, as soon as he did that, Samuel showed up. We see in verse number 13 that Samuel says to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see the problem we see with Saul is that he's a man who feels that he can set aside the Lord's commandment if it pleases him. Saul's going to do what Saul wants to do regardless of what God is said to do. And we see that glaring character flaw come out again. It's only a short step up to chapter number 15. This is a famous story. God commanded Saul to go and destroy Israel's long-standing enemy, the Amalekites. Verse number 3, you may remember this. He's to go and destroy them utterly, down to the last man, woman, child, all of the animals. This is divine judgment on the Amalekites, if this seems harsh. 
So God tells him to destroy them utterly, to bring back nothing. But Saul gets over there, and he decides he likes the look of some of the things. And it would be a real shame to just destroy all of this. And so in verses 8 and 9, we see that he takes the king, Agag, alive. He takes the best of all the flocks. Verse number 9 tells us, all that was good, they didn't destroy. Instead, all that was despised and worthless, that's what they devoted to destruction. Well, Saul heads back home, and the Lord appears to Samuel and tells him what happened, how he's displeased with Saul, and Samuel goes out to meet him. And this, to me, is one of the most vivid scenes in all of the Bible. Samuel goes out to meet Saul, and Saul sees him there on the horizon, and he exclaims, Blessed be you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And just about that time, you know, right on cue, a sheep stir up bad. And Samuel says, well then, what does this mean, the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In other words, the sounds that had preceded Saul told Samuel very clearly that he had not kept God's law. He hadn't destroyed everything. And then Saul shows us another character flaw. He's not willing to accept responsibility. He tries to shift blame. Remember this? He says, well, you know, the people saw the best of the flocks and they decided what they wanted to do was to take back the best of all of them and to make a sacrifice for the Lord. Then comes one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. Samuel responds to him, verse number 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You can almost see Saul as he grows older. You can picture him from that timid, modest youth who wanted to please the Lord, the one that God selected. He becomes proud of his own strength, proud of his position, proud of his victories, proud of his ability to organize an army, proud of his conquest, and a few years passed, and he's thinking more about Saul than he's thinking about anything else. See, the problem here for Saul is self-centeredness. That's his fundamental problem. And the reason we wanted to look at him as an example is because that's a problem that can ruin any of us. It's the problem of thinking about your own will, your own desires, rather than the will and the desires and the commandments of God. And whatever we want to call this, egocentricity, self-centeredness, selfishness, these things are like a cancer in a person's life. They can completely eat you up. There's a destructive power that comes over a person when we start to feel like, we're what's most important, and it's by our own power and by our own strength and our own wit and our own wisdom that we've accomplished everything that we accomplished in life. It's a very old story, but 
The sin of self-centeredness that ruins Saul's life is a very modern problem. It's at least as prevalent in our own age. Maybe we're even more susceptible to it than some. In our country, one that's built on this concept of self-reliance and independence, it's easy for us to think about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman and to take pride in those accomplishments to the point that we trust ourselves, we rely on ourselves and we just push God out of the picture. God at one time was very great in the eyes of Saul. But later on, Saul became his own God. God was displaced by Saul's own conception of himself. And we see the end result of that. You turn over just a few more pages. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we see that when you make yourself the center of the universe, the jealousy that results from anything that may threaten that position. It happened after the young shepherd boy, David, killed the giant Goliath. That's a story we know even as children. And Saul takes David in verse number five and he makes him a captain in his army and everything was going great. Until one day after David faced the Philistines, you start reading in verse number six, they're returning home and the women all come out singing and praising Saul and David and they sing that Saul is struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul hears that and he says, well, if they're singing that about David, what more can he have but the kingdom? And it says that from that day on, Saul kept an eye on David. His own self-centeredness, his self-concern ruined his life and caused God to remove him from being king. But after a time, God allowed David to come into the place of Saul. And we read most of David's story in 2 Samuel. And for the most part, this is a wonderful story. David, you remember, was a shepherd boy. He was full of courage. He was full of faith. He stood alone before Goliath in triumph, as we already mentioned. And he had a, a number of other fine qualities. And we don't need to mention all of David's good qualities tonight. There are many. I don't want to give him the short end of the stick here. But David had a failing too. David's failing was of a very different kind than Saul's. We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse number 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. David saw this woman who was not his wife. He committed adultery. And then his sin was compounded by trying to cover it up 
even to the point of murder. You remember the rest of this story. To try to cover all of this up, he calls her husband Uriah back to the front and tries to send him home. But Uriah, being a good soldier, he's not going to go and sleep in his own bed. He sleeps outside the king's house. And so, having no other recourse, he thinks, David devises a backup plan. He sends a message secretly to Joab. Joab actually sends it by Uriah's hand because he knows he's a man he can trust. And the message is to put Uriah on the front line and when the battle is the hottest, draw back from him so he'll be killed. That plan's carried out. Uriah dies. See, David's sin was not so much being self-centered, although in a sense, self-centeredness is the root of all sin. David's sin was lust, another one of the causes of the downfall of people. I don't want to dwell on that specifically so much as to point out that David's sin was a secret sin. It's one that took hold of him, one that he knew was wrong, otherwise he wouldn't have tried to cover it up. But he got lost in it. It overtook him. He knew it didn't match that public face, that persona he put out there, and so he did his best to hide it. But eventually, it found him out. We can all fall victim to that, whether it's lust, whether it's some sort of addiction that we get caught in, that could be a substance, that could be some sort of other vice that we're engaged in, whether it's sins of disposition, we all at times can get caught up in things that we know were wrong, we know that they don't match the profession of who we claim to be as Christians, and yet we get so entangled in them that we don't know how to extricate ourselves from them. Now, to David's credit, he lived his life in such a way after that as to make things right. You'll remember in chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him that touching parable of the little ewe lamb. That is, that there was a rich man who had abundant flocks and there was this one poor man. All he had was this one little ewe lamb. And she was so precious to him that she actually ate at his table. He held her like, he was, like she was a daughter to him. And then one day, Visitors came to that rich man and wanting to feed them, not knowing what to do, instead of taking from his flocks, he went and he took that one little ewe lamb from that poor man. And when David heard that story, he was outraged. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who did this thing shall surely die. And Nathan said to him, you are the man. Now, when David was confronted like that, to his credit, he repented. Verse number 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's with a great deal of sympathy we read the 51st Psalm. That was the scripture that was read from a few moments ago. That's a psalm of, of penance, his penitential psalm, by tradition said to be written on this occasion. You could read the whole thing. But we read the excerpt, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We should all be thankful for the fact that we have a merciful, a gracious God who promises us that even though we sin, he will forgive us of our sins when we confess those sins, when we repent, when we turn back to it. But unfortunately, the problem with secret sin, even if we don't get caught in the moment, is that from then on out, 
he had to deal with the consequences of that sin. For the rest of his life, as Nathan says, the sword didn't depart from his house. His sons fought with one another. A couple of them rose up in rebellion against him. It's great that God forgives sin. But wouldn't it have been even better if David would never have gotten himself into that position in the first place and marred that otherwise beautiful record that he had? It's a black chapter that stands out in the life of King David. In the course of time, David grew old and from among his sons, Solomon was selected to be his successor. And this takes us to 1 Kings. Solomon was a young man of great ability and he went on to become an extremely powerful king. All sorts of other nations brought him tribute. He had copper mines. He had ships trading, sailing as far west as modern day Spain and down in the Gulf of Aqaba. Solomon became great, even by worldly standards. But part of his greatness was due to the fact that early on in his life, he leaned heavily upon God. You remember this story? In 1 Kings chapter 3, soon after he was called to be king, the Lord appeared to him and he said, ask me anything. This is verse number 5. Ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And you probably remember Solomon's answer. Verse number 7. He says, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Though I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon asked for wisdom. And God was pleased because he didn't ask for the things people would normally ask for, wealth or power, the lives of his enemies. And because he had asked for wisdom and not those other things, God gave him not only wisdom, but that wealth and that power we spoke of a moment ago. But then Solomon made his mistake. We read of this a few chapters later. 1 Kings chapter 11. Because Solomon was such a, a great and influential man by worldly standards, he surrounded himself with a lot of people who didn't fear God. He brought into his inner circle a lot of people who were actually pagans. He entered into intimate relationships with many of these. And the result then is the same result as it is now. As Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Here's the way it happened with Solomon. 1 Kings 11 verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. It's the same thing that can happen to us, letting our company, letting our associations drag us down. 
I wish we had the power to really visualize these three kings of Israel. Now, there stands Saul. We look up to him because he looks like a king. He's right out of central casting. And yet he was a man whose self-centeredness blasted all of the success that he might have had in life. We ought to remember Paul's admonition to the Romans. Let each one of you not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's Romans chapter 12, verse number 3. Let's, each of us, recognize our own weaknesses, our own imperfections, and let's all realize that it's only when we trust in God, only when we lean on Him, that we're truly strong. When we look at David, we see a man with all of these wonderful virtues, a man who was called a man after God's own heart. We read that passage tonight. But we also should remember the secret sins of his life, the weaknesses that he had that blackened that otherwise sterling record. So let's always endeavor to make sure that our acts, our conduct, match the profession of faith that we make. Then we remember Solomon, wisest of men, a skilled ruler, an administrator, but a man whose companionships pulled him away from his relationship with God. Let's remember that choosing our companions, our associations, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's in the business world or whatever, is still potentially destructive to us. These men lived and died in the long ago, but their lessons are still just as relevant for us now as they were in their own day. And my prayer this evening is that as we listen again to these familiar stories, most of you know all this, but as we listen again and we think again about these stories of God's broken kings that we might determine to avoid their failures. Now, the best way we can avoid those failures is to anchor ourselves in Christ. And if you're here this evening and you've never come to Christ, you've never put him on in baptism, I urge you to do that tonight, to put your trust in him, to be buried with him in baptism, to have your sins washed away, to dedicate your life to the Lord. But I know that more than likely on an evening like this, an audience like this, at least most of us, maybe everyone here already is a Christian. Maybe some of these sins are, are your sins that you're dealing with. Maybe you're struggling with self-centeredness. Maybe there's secret sin in your life you need to repent of publicly this evening. Uh, maybe some of your associations have pulled you away from the Lord. If you're struggling with any one of these things or if there's some other need that you have, if we can help you in any way, you can make it known now while we sing. <laughs>